Welcome to you all again, and thanks so much for making it again today. Uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to just again join you guys this week. Um, and yeah, actually, Chris, I am not English. I am Welsh. Um, so um, yeah, faux pas there. Um, sorry, but yes, I am. Sorry. United Kingdom is fine. <laughs> so yes, as, as Chris said, um, I am from the UK. We've been here in Kenya for three years enjoying this beautiful country. Um, so yeah, so this week, as Chris said, we are speaking about um, why did Jesus die? Um, and as Chris said, and I know there are some people here who weren't here last week and also who may have just come late as well, who didn't hear all of Chris's talk. Um, but he, you know, he did a really great job in just trying to show us this whole kind of historical perspective of the fact that actually it's not really contested that Jesus was alive and on this earth. Um, but obviously the more contentious question are, uh, the questions are, you know, was he who he says he was? Was he the son of God? And did he resurrect? Did he actually um, rise from the dead? And even again, even in that second question, Chris also just led us to a number of passages and referred to the Bible eyewitness accounts in their hundreds of people Jesus um, but you may not be at that place yet in terms of um, being convinced that Jesus was indeed the son of God and that's completely fine um, but I think just to take Chris's point again which I think is something that we really should keep in our mind is that you're not able it's not open to you to sit on the fence so you're not able to say you know he was just a good person he did good things on this earth um, Chris's point to us is that actually we have to come to the a conclusion that either he was who he says he was, which was that he was the son of God, or that there's something else going on that he's either some kind of he's delusional or he's a fraud of some sort. Um, so we have to kind of get ourselves comfortable, at least by the end of this course, that he was one of those things. Um, but today we are talking about why did he die? Now I am going to try and share my screen with you guys. So. Can somebody tell me if you can see this? Um, can you guys see that? No. Okay. Thank you. Um, you guys see that now? Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Thank you so yes. much. Okay, brilliant, thank you. So in order for us to look at this question, why did Jesus die? We have to first uh, talk about the S word, we'll call it the S word, <laughs> which isn't a swear word, but it's sin. Um, and it's not something that we feel comfortable about talking about, certainly not in Western culture, but I think here it's often used the other extent, you know, like you hear people shouting about, you know, turn or burn, like that kind of, you're doing all these really bad things. Um, but unfortunately, we have to talk about sin. And inherently, I think we have a problem talking about the word sin because of the fact that we don't like to feel like we are, we're at fault. Um, so I came up with, and I looked this up, um, best excuses for speeding when driving. And so asked why he was doing 88 in a 60 zone, a man replied, I was trying to go back in time. From an 80 year old who was stopped, I'm speeding so I don't forget where I'm going. I'm going to give, I'm about to give birth, but you don't look pregnant. It's a small baby. 
It was the wind. Officer, I wasn't speeding, but I did pass two cars who were. And my personal favorite, the driver asked, what do I do when this, with this speeding ticket? Police, police officer says, keep it. When you collect four, you get a bicycle. I'm not sure if this really works when we're like, there's no faces to see if you're actually laughing or whether you just think they're really bad jokes. But anyway, the truth is, the truth is we all like to make excuses, don't we, when we do stuff wrong. Um, even if it's just to ourselves to justify our own actions. Um, and I personally find it really hard to say sorry, probably, and to find that there's like, that I'm at fault, especially when it comes to my husband, because I'm always just trying to justify myself and to defend myself rather than to, to admit that I might be wrong. But conversely, you also hear people when they talk about who they are as people who just say, you know, I'm actually just a good person. Um, I don't really do very much wrong. And, and sometimes that surprises me, I think, because I'm just always on the other scale of just always doing really bad stuff all the time. Um, but in a sense, it shouldn't surprise me because, um, you know, the Bible says that we are made in God's image. We're made to be like him. We're made to then do things. Um, but I guess the question is, then, what what is the standard? So how do you define what is good? Surely it depends on what you're comparing to. So, for example, in Kenya, it seems to be me like fairly common knowledge that corruption is just a thing. It just is part of everyday life. Um, so I recently was listening to some law students um, who were just basically saying about how they were in law school and they, um, they I think they were doing some exams. And basically you could pay the invigilator just to give them more time. So you give the money to the invigilator and they just stand over you, and basically give you more time. Um, and to me, that's quite shock shocking because that can't really exist because in the UK, basically dishonesty, any kind of dishonesty type of crime that you commit, even it's, if it's really small and you're a lawyer, normally leads to you just getting losing your license to practice. So my point there is not to bash Kenya or to praise UK, but it's really like, what is the standard? Is it, are you defining what is good? Is the determinative factor where my plane lands? So in the UK, it's good. In Kenya, it's bad. Or is it something else? So if it's, then if it's not about where I am, where I'm located, then is it about who I'm comparing myself to instead? So on this slide here, I have come up with a very easy little line at the very top we have very good so this is meant to associate the very 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 good people on this earth and at the bottom are the very 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 bad people so first one let's go with mother Teresa. okay so mother Teresa, i imagine she's done a pretty good job um i imagine she's probably in heaven i imagine that she has saved many 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 poor people so if you think of the the arrow at the top probably i'm going to put her somewhere there if I think on the other hand of someone like Hitler, where I go probably at the low scale, so somewhere at the bottom like there. What about like Nelson Mandela? Maybe he wasn't as good as Mother Teresa, so maybe I can put him just a bit below because he did some great stuff as well. And then what about Saddam Hussein? Well, some people say that he did some good things, certainly kept away ISIS and all of that. So maybe he's just there. So here's like my little scale. And then where do I put me? Where do you put you? So I guess I would put myself probably somewhere lower, lower middle, somewhere there. Okay. But then the question is, what's the standard? 
So is the standard at the very top where my little arrow is, where it says very good, is that the, is that the highest standard, the highest possible standard? Or is it actually off the scale? Is it somewhere like my ceiling or is it somewhere like the sky? Because the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the glory of God here is Jesus. That's what the Bible's referring to because Jesus walked a perfect life because, as he claimed, he was God himself. And that's the standard. So then on that basis, it just basically means then it's completely unattainable for us to get anywhere near Jesus. So then you might ask, well, then what's the point? Like, what's the point of even discussing this? Why does it even matter? And the point is, is that sin has consequences. And I've called this the four Ps. The first is the pollution of sin. So the Bible says that for, for from within us, so from in our hearts, out of our hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and they make you unclean. So they mess up our lives and somehow it seems to be almost inherent in us to do some or all of these things. So I've got a three-year-old son. His name is Micah. And um, every day I ask him to go, has he brushed his teeth? Straight away he'll say, yes, mommy. Even when it's 100% clear that he hasn't brushed his teeth. I've been with him the whole time, changing him, cleaning him, washing him. Have you brushed your teeth, Micah? No, yes, mommy, I have. And even in his innocence, there's something so inherent to just not tell the truth. Um, and, you know, maybe I can't really blame him because it must be something that runs in the family. Because when I was younger, I actually remember even like much older than that, um, wetting my toothbrush so that my parents would think that I brushed my teeth. And then when I got caught doing that and they could smell that stank, I then put a little bit of toothpaste in my mouth as well, just to avoid having to brush my teeth. But then at least think that I have because I've got fresh breath now. So inherently, we, we do some of these things, and maybe some of you don't do many of those things, but even if it's just one of those things, then we still fall short of the glory of God. So the disciple James says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. And actually, the standard can be even higher than that, because the first commandment, so this is the law that um, God gave right at the beginning, um, was to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. So even if we are obeying all the rules, which I can't imagine any of us are, but even if we are, then if God isn't our first love, so if we don't, if we're worshipping something else, then we're still sinning, even if that's just we're worshipping ourselves just take care of ourselves so that's the pollution of sin the second is the power of sin i don't know about you but if you've ever had a problem with sin generally i used to have a problem with lying like i just had a problem you may have to tell from that story i told you but i found i've always found it really hard just to tell the truth um and i but if you if you ever have struggled with certain things there's an addictive power to sin and Jesus says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin because it keeps a grip on us. So commonly, things like pornography, it's a real big problem in the West and probably elsewhere globally, but like pornography, maybe sexual addiction, drug addiction, you tend to 
have a hold of us and we just keep on indulging in it over and over again. It doesn't even have to be that extreme. Maybe it's anger or slander. You know, isn't it good to gossip sometimes? And don't we just love fuel that a bit more or envy or greed? Don't we just love a bit more money? That's the power of sin. It's penalty of sin. You know, there's something so inherent in us, in our nature that cries out for justice. We often hear stories of murder or rape or sexual abuse or something happening to kids. Um, my husband, Thierry, he's um, a Rwandan. And um, he, so I've just heard so many stories firsthand from genocide survivors, people who've just said the most atrocious things that have happened to them and their families. And there's something in us that just aches for justice because there isn't, there isn't any justice in those scenarios and those situations. But taken to its, its extreme, I can easily point the finger and say that those guys deserve it because of the disgusting things that they've done. But it's much, much harder for me to then say that I deserve it. I'm happy to judge others, but I find it so much more difficult to judge myself. And the Bible says, you therefore have no excuse when you pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge the other, when you pass judgment on someone, uh, when you are passing judgment, you're condemning, condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. And the fourth one is the partition of sin. And I don't know whether you guys have ever done something wrong to somebody or someone has offended you. Um, I recently just blurted something out to somebody and caused a massive offense, um, actually not purposefully or knowingly. But after that moment, I was so embarrassed and just didn't want to see them. I just wanted to avoid all eye contact and was just so ashamed. Um, and, and it's a similar thing with sin. When we do bad stuff, we create this kind of cloud between us and God. And it's like we're cut off from him. There's a partition, like a break between us and God. And as a result of what we've done wrong, this can get bigger. And the reality is that actually we have the potential to cut ourselves off eternally from God. And the Bible says, because the wages of sin is death, not just physical death here, but actually spiritual death. So the Bible says your iniquities, your sins have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face, God's face, from you so that he won't be able to hear you. So those are the four consequences of sin. But I sometimes used to wonder, well, you know, like, why doesn't God just show himself? You know, if he exists, and I'm sure many of us have thought of this before, surely he could just make it a bit easier for us. You know, why can't he just show up and then just we'll know how to follow him? And yet that's exactly what he did before Jesus. He spoke directly to the people and did some amazing stuff for them. And I'm sure you've heard of like the plagues of Egypt where, you know, God hurls the frogs and the gnats and the flies and the hail and the locusts in the faces of the Egyptians who are seen as the baddies because they were enslaving the people of God, the Israelites. And finally, Pharaoh agrees to let them go to leave Egypt. But the problem is they're faced with this sea in front of them, the Red Sea, and they have no boats. And then God just, in his infinite wisdom, just opens the sea. I mean, like, could you imagine just being even just a fly on the wall to see that? Um, but still, after that, the, 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 the people of God, the Israelites, turn against God. They start grumbling. They even build these false gods made out of gold and start worshipping him 
even though they see the hand of God in the most incredible way. And then so God allows them to do their own thing and then they get into loads of trouble and then they cry out for, to God again and then God comes and helps. And there's a circular thing in the entire bit of the Old Testament, the Bible, the same thing going on and on. They're crying out to God. God helps them. God rescues them. They kind of feel happy again. They then forget God and the same thing happens over and over again. So what does God do? What's his answer? Because he doesn't want to be cut off from his people, but he's also a God of justice and a God of justice demands some kind of um, retribution, some kind of holding someone to account. He can't ignore sin. So God's answer was to send his only son on earth. So Jesus, who comes as a baby, not born in a place of royalty, but in a place of poverty, becomes fully man, but he's also fully God. And with that, he experiences the trials, the fears, the temptations of human beings firsthand. More significantly, Jesus knowingly goes to death because he's God. And that's God's grand plan. Now, you might think, well, that's really odd. Why would he do that? The Bible says it's because Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, and that by his wounds, we've been healed. So essentially, he's died for, for you and for me. So he substituted himself in the place that should have been reserved for you and me. And this is something that I find so unique to Christianity than any other religion, because God lowers himself to take the most ridiculed, shameful place that actually should have been reserved for us. One of my big questions used to be, you know, why does God allow suffering? And that's a really good question to ask, and I've no doubt we'll talk about it on this course at some point. But the bigger question for me is, why did Jesus endure torture? Why did he allow himself to be ridiculed and shamed if he was God? A third century historian records Roman cru crucifixion in these terms. He says, when they reached the site of crucifixion, he was again stripped naked. He was laid on the cross and six inch nails were driven into his forearms just above the wrists. His knees were then twisted sideways so that the ankles could be nailed between the tibia and the Achilles tendon. He was lifted up on the cross, which was then dropped into a socket in the ground. There he was left to hang in the intense heat and unbearable thirst exposed to the ridicule of the crowd. He hung there in unthinkable pain for six hours while his life slowly drained away. It was the height of pain and the depth of shame. But the Bible actually doesn't really even focus that much on his physical agony. So when you read the Bible, it actually doesn't really talk that much about what actually happened in physical terms. But what is much more unique is the spiritual suffering that Jesus endures. The Bible says that we are like sheep that have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. And the Lord God has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So Jesus on the cross was carrying your sin, my sin, their sin. And at that moment, he was cut off from God, not because of what he'd done, because we're told that he never sinned um, on earth, but because of what we have done. And that's why in that moment on the cross, left to die on his own, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he's abandoned, he's cut off, and he's on his own. So he pays the price, the price that actually should have been our price to pay, and that place that should have been reserved for us. 
So then what's the result? Because it's all kind of like gloom and doom is probably what you're going to tell me. Um, and really, the gospel message should be good news for everybody. So the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. So the cross is actually the ultimate act of love. Jesus says, greater love has no person than this, to lay down his life for their friends. And that's what he calls us. So God endures this ultimate act of suffering. So he knows firsthand how it feels to suffer. And he laid down his life for you and for me. And if apart from anything, we, he can't therefore be accused of being a distant God who is so far-fetched from the realities of what we go through on earth. So the cross and the resurrection of Jesus some three days later shows that evil is then defeated once and for all. So no longer was there any more rituals that needed to take place to atone for our sins. You may have heard uh, of in the Old Testament, like in the old, old times, that pe the, the Israelites, the people of God, anytime they sinned, they had to um, sacrifice an animal and just atone for their sins that way through the blood. But Jesus, who's actually called the Lamb of God, was sacrificed to then pay for all the sins of the past, all the sins of the present, and all our future sins as well. So we have been forgiven. So through him, I now am able to access God, God the Father. So if we go back to my four Ps, but we do it in reverse, the partition of sin is removed through the cross. The Bible says God was in Christ reconciling the world, that's you and me, to himself. So now we've been rec reconciled to God the Father. The second was the penalty. So the penalty for sin has been paid. So there's now no more condemnation for the things that I've done wrong. I don't have to feel guilty and ashamed anymore because the Bible tells me that I am justified. In other words, just as if I've never sinned. It's like I've been acquitted, which means that I wasn't even found guilty in the first place. So Jesus says, I have come to give my life as a ransom, basically to set us free. The third we said was the power of sin. Now that power of sin is broken because Jesus says, if the son sets you free, you're free indeed. So this whole kind of addictive power that we're talking, that we were talking about before goes away. It falls away. There are two theological words that sometimes come up. The first is this justification point, which means that something happens immediately. So when we, um, give our life when we when we want to become believers we are automatically put right with God and made righteous he says that it's because of what God has done through Jesus that we are made righteous we are made clean but there's and so there's no guilt and there's no condemnation so it's really about what Jesus has done on the cross and then there's this also one another word which is called sanctification which is becoming like Jesus and just being refined more and being like better, maybe less of those, that list of the things that I told you uh, that I read out before, but that is a lifelong process. So those are the kind of two words that sometimes we use, but essentially the power of sin is broken. And finally, the pollution of sin is then cleared. The Bible says that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We are forgiven. Guys, before I became a Christian, I really held grudges. And I don't know whether you've ever 
not forgiven someone because unforgiveness hurts us, doesn't it? Like um, it's someone says that it's like drinking poison and hoping the other person's going to die. And when we're forgiven by God, we realize we need to forgive others. And that can be so hard at times, especially if you if you tr- ever have tried to forgive someone who's not even asking for forgiveness. I had to do that once and it took me basically years of trying to do it more so than ever because he never wanted to be forgiven. He never thought that he did anything wrong. But what sometimes even is to forgive ourselves. C.S. Lewis writes, if God's forgiven us and we refuse to forgive ourselves, it's like setting ourselves up as a higher tribunal than God. So God is giving, is offering us unlimited forgiveness. So we need to be able to forgive ourselves and then to be able to forgive others. And when we do that, we notice that actually there's transformation, not in all our relationships, in our marriages, in our family life, in our work life, in our relation, other relationships, but it has to start with us. So I just want to conclude and really just by summing up, why did Jesus die? And if I could just say that in a few words, I would just say it's because God loves you. He loves me. And if you guys, if you individually were the only person in the world, he would have died just for you. And because of that, he offers complete freedom, a clean start. The slate is wiped completely free, clean. The Bible says Jesus takes away the sins of the world. It's like as if they were no more. And guys, when I got this, when I actually understood what that meant, it's like nothing else really even matters. Like I felt God had given me a new identity. I understood that I was his precious child who he bled and he died for, who he suffered for. The creator of the universe loved me and he forgave me and he accepted me. And he had given me a purpose for this time on the earth right now. And I therefore had no desire or need to worry about what other people thought of me. And that's the opportunity that God is giving us to be set free from sin, from the burdens, from the worries, from the hole that we often feel inside of us of, you know, is there anything more, is there more to life? Is there something that just needs to be filled that can't be filled? The endless kind of searching for something that we just can't find. So how do we then respond to this gift that God has given us? Two ways in two two parts. The first is just to acknowledge that we are sinful and understand that, that we are in need of being forgiven. And the second is accepting God's solution, however odd it might be, however wacky it might be, that accepting that what Jesus did for us on the cross was for us and inviting him to come and live with us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus gave me that way out nearly 25 years ago and the same offer, the same gift is available for you. Thanks so much guys.